What's up, guys? Welcome to the Outpost Community Church Sunday podcast. Currently, we are walking through the book of Matthew. And it is our prayer that these messages will inspire you to follow Jesus with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we're praying that you have a, a great, great week, week of, of worship. worship. Enjoy. guys would grab your Bible. You can go to Matthew chapter 7. Once you're there, go ahead and stand up with me, and I'm going to be reading through the scripture. Uh, if you don't know who I am, hi, my name is Greg Brooks. Uh, I have the privilege of being the lead pastor here at Outpost, and uh, I will be just today reading the scripture. So this is Matthew chapter 7. If you have it on your phone, it's a faster way to get there, and uh, we'll read together, okay? Or you follow along. Here we go. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 7. This is Jesus on the mount. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. This word of the Lord. You can have a seat. Thanks, Greg. Good morning. For those of you who haven't met me, my name is Eric, Eric Wachab, and it is a pleasure to get to share with you from God's Word. We're going to uh, look at this portion of the Sermon on the Mount today, and uh, if you're wondering how I got up here, my primary qualification for speaking this morning is that I'm very tall, and just like uh, King Saul was, and we know how well that ended. You can tell it's summertime, schedule's weird, things are changing around, we're not going to meet in this building next Sunday morning. Uh, if you happen to be new here today, welcome, we're really glad that you are here. Uh, obviously, it's going to look different the next week or two. Uh, I know that whenever I go to a new church, visit a new church, I always want to hear the lead pastor, the real pastor, so that you can kind of... See, what's, what's this new church all about? That's, that was true when we came here to Cody several years ago. But uh, unfortunately for you, it's not the case. You're going to have to come back in two weeks to hear Greg, which you want to do because he speaks with a lot more passion than I do. Uh, his, he writes his sermons in the original Greek and occasionally performs feats of strength from the stage. So come back in two weeks. Let's pray that God would bless our time. Father God, you are a good God. And it is a joy to read from your word. I pray that your word would change us. I pray that we would leave here uh, with a passion to put into practice what, what you teach. You sat down and taught thousands these words. And thousands of years later, we are still learning from you. We are hearing your voice. Lord, would you... 
speak to our hearts. You are our good king. And I pray you'd rule in our hearts today. Amen. So yeah, for the last year, for this, this year, we've been going through the book of Matthew. Uh, the last few months, we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is definitely the greatest sermon that's ever been given. So I think it is, uh, there's, there's some irony in having me stand up here and try to expand or expound on the greatest sermon that's ever been given. But there is value in uh, considering more fully what Christ was saying to his followers then and what he's saying to his followers here today. The central theme to the Sermon on the Mount is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew calls it, how we as fallen humans relate to our holy king. At its heart, the Sermon on the Mount is about the relationship between a good king and his people. This passage, chapter 7, verses 7 through 14, it has three main ideas. First big idea is that God opened the door of his kingdom for you, very specifically for you as a person. In the middle of the passage, God calls us to be good to each other. And then sort of the end of the passage, last few verses here, God calls you to himself through a narrow gate. He's calling you, but that gate is narrow, and again, it's, it's specific. So let's jump into it. Reading in verse 7, Ask, it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven Give good things to those who ask him. Now this part of the sermon to me is very comforting. A lot of comfort here. Because it tells us that the, Jesus tells us that the kingdom of heaven can be found. We don't just seek and seek and seek and spend our lives looking for one more thing. In our society, it is fashionable to seek. In our society, it's unacceptable really to say with any certainty I've found, or this is the truth. But that's what Jesus promises us here. He promises that he will walk us into God's presence, into God's kingdom, and we will find our creator and our king. Now this idea of both seeking God and finding him is not new to the New Testament. Back in the Old Testament in 1 Chronicles, Chapter 28, verse 9, says, And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father. Serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Isaiah, chapter 55, verse 6, says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Jeremiah 29:13, it's a special verse to me and our family. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So what is the promise that Jesus gives us here? 
promises that when we ask, when we seek, when we knock, God will open the door of his kingdom to us. He will. How is the door unlocked? How will it be opened to us, to me personally or to you? Acts chapter 16, verse 31 says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. In James chapter 1, verse 6, we see that we must ask in faith, not doubting. So we ask in faith, we believe in Jesus, we knock on that door, and he will open it. That's the promise. It's comforting. Let's look at verse 11. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? In verse 11, we see that God gives us good gifts. God sees and loves us individually. He sees us in our context or in our circle, our, our smaller family and the, the world that we're in on a daily basis. He also sees the greater world around us over centuries, over millennia, and he has plans for each of those uh, groups, if you will. He has a plan that's specific to your life for your good. He has a plan for your family and the folks that you sort of know. He also has a plan that spend, spans centuries, that spans millennia, and, and reconciles a fallen world to him. For God, that's not too much. As a father, I do just a little bit of this, certainly not spanning centuries, but a little bit. I sometimes meet my daughter's immediate needs, where they say, Dad, I'm hungry. I say, okay, here's a sandwich. Sometimes I want what's best for them and for our family. So, Dad, I'm hungry. I might say, no, nah, you've got to wait 20 minutes, and we're all going to sit down and eat together as a whole family. Sometimes our parenting is focused on what's best for them two decades from now. When they're married, they have families of their own. So they might say to me today, Dad, I'm hungry. And I'll say, no, I'm not going to stop for burgers because they're expensive, and we're going to save the money so that you don't have a, pile, a crushing pile of student debt in a few years and instead can choose not to work and stay home with my grandkids after you're married, of course. And I'm just a sinful, sh short-sighted man, consumed by the temporal, but how much greater is God's plan? How much more does he want to give us good gifts that align with his plan for you personally, for the world that you see and experience, and for his creation that spans uh, centuries? Let's also notice in verse 11, a central idea here. You are evil. This is Jesus' basic understanding about humanity. We're evil. We are fallen, we're sinful, we're separated from God. But Jesus just doesn't pronounce that and kind of wander off. He doesn't curse us that way and do nothing about it. On the contrary, he knew that we needed a savior, that we need a savior, that I need a savior today. And that's why he was here. He was here to seek and save the lost. That's why he was on that mountainside speaking to people who wanted to know God. That's why he died on the cross. He was here to seek and save us. On the other hand, 
God is not evil. He is holy and he's loving and he is our good king. James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is good. So what prayer does God promise to answer? And when does he answer that prayer? Remember the context here. Primarily, this entire sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, the passage is about the kingdom of heaven. It's reconciling us, lost humanity, to our holy God, our holy king. But here in verse 11, we see that gifts is plural. The good gifts given by a good God aren't just his coming kingdom, not just this future idea. It's not even just our salvation, which we clearly need. He wants to give you good things that are both eternal and that meets your needs for today. So is he promising wealth? Is he promising prosperity? 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 clearly refutes that idea. We will have troubles in this world. But Jesus does say in Matthew 21, if you have faith and do not doubt, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive. If you ask by faith. In John 14, 14, Jesus says, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So we see that Jesus is talking about good gifts that conform to our good king's goodwill for our lives, to bring about his good purposes, both for you today and the period of time over which we'll never see. What about the timing of his answers to our prayers? Is it going to be now, always? Eh, Usually not. My mom has a saying, God is never late. He's never early, but he's never late. We could see this when Jesus was uh, fasting for 40 days in the wilderness. Earlier in Matthew, we read about this. He was tempted in the wilderness, and we know that Jesus asked God the Father to sustain him to sustain him on a daily basis. But he sat in the wilderness, Jesus sat in the wilderness, surrounded by rocks when he wanted bread. When Jesus was most hungry for a fish, God allowed Satan, the ultimate serpent, to come slithering up. Eventually, God the Father did meet Jesus' earthly needs. He did sustain him. So we see God's timing is not always ours, though God's purposes are always for good. Another example of this, after the, after the close of the Old Testament, there were devout Jews that were seeking God's kingdom on earth. And they didn't hear from God for hundreds of years. God was still working. He was still active. The Messiah was still coming. And God was bringing about an answer to their prayers the whole time. Although there were godly men and women who longed for that day and died without ever seeing it. God's purposes are good. Verse 12. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. 
It's short and simple. I'm going to read it again. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. This is the law and the prophets. We call this the golden rule. It's simple. It's elegant. It's nearly impossible. In fact, I would say that it is impossible apart from God's Holy Spirit indwelling and changing our hearts. Having gone through the several first chapters of Matthew over the last couple months, I'm a little surprised that Matthew doesn't say, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Because Jesus' teaching here does kind of turn things on its head. But that's not what he says. He does say, in some translations, it's... it's uh, uh, that begins with, in everything, whatever you wish others would do to you, do also for them. That everything is not just the gifts that Jesus was talking about in the previous verse. It's not just, hey, you give me something good and I'll give you something back good and we'll call it even. It's instead in all of life, in all spheres of life, Treat others better than how we want to treat them. Now, I know that I am naturally critical to others. That's my, that's my sinful bent. I don't instinctively see life through the eyes of other people with the empathy that, for example, my wife does. But you know who I'm really good at being gracious to? Me. Do you know whose best intentions I can always see and kind of excuse the, the problems? Because I, I knew I was, I, was, I was trying to do it right. Yeah, me. What Jesus is saying is apply that logic, that willingness to see past faults, that willingness to look for the best in people, and apply that to other people and not just to yourself. How would that change my family? How much better would my family Look, if I always thought the best of my wife and children. Here's a funny example. What would my driving look like if I always put other drivers' interests ahead of my own? That's kind of a funny little thing, but it sure, is, uh, sure illustrates our character, doesn't it? This commandment, like the law and the prophets, it points out to us that God's law is good and we need a savior. Do I want to be murdered? No, I don't. Do I want my wife to cheat on me? No, I don't. Do I want someone to steal my car? No, I don't. Do I want my neighbor to covet my wife or hire away my employee or begrudge me some success? No, I want none of those things. Which means that I agree with the Ten Commandments. I agree with the law and the prophets. I agree with God that his way is best, that his kingdom is better than the kingdom that I live in. The way we want to be treated, the way that we know is fair or just, is tremendous proof that not only do I know the law of God, but I accept it. And this is true even at a really young age. I know that I did not want my dad to give me rocks for dinner. I did not want a snake for dinner. We know the law of God and we have a strong sense of how 
what is just and fair to me. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32 tells us that everyone is without excuse because we know the law. And why did God create the law? In his love, he gave us the law because he didn't want anyone to treat you like the list of questions I just asked. And in our wickedness, he knew that you and I would treat each other that way. So again, remember this is a Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is speaking to a group of people. Just a few minutes earlier, for us we studied this passage several weeks ago, but just a few minutes earlier, Jesus taught about adultery and murder and how we are all equally guilty. We all fall short. Okay, But I still find it very difficult to extend to others the same grace that I happily give myself in those areas. Treat others the way you want to be treated. It's a simple idea. But everyone is still bent towards serving ourselves. I am still bent towards serving myself. And we agree with this, but we still can't seem to do it. And that shows us that we are sinners in need of a savior, that we are on a highway to destruction. So here's how I'm going to be able to tell if you've been paying attention to this portion of the sermon. When the service is over and we all hop in our cars and we drive out of the parking lot, I want to see a whole line of cars with everybody looking at each other saying, no, 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 you, go first. Hey, no, no, you come in front of me. And a line of cars behind me waiting. No, no, come around. Go, it's you first, right? Wouldn't that be nice? If we actually put into practice what Jesus tells us. Let's move on to verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate. The gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. The narrow gate, the hard path, they lead to life. They lead to the kingdom of God. To right relationship with your creator. Now the first thing to notice here is that uh, these two verses actually start with a command. Jesus says, enter. Doesn't really say if you want to. He wants you to be part of God's kingdom. He's saying, please, enter. Secondly, his command begs the question, what is the narrow gate? How am I supposed to know what gate? Not surprisingly, Jesus answers this question for us. In John chapter 10, verse 9, he says, I am the gate. In John 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. The easy, broad way leads to destruction. It is a well-traveled highway, and it is a foolish man who follows the wisdom of the world as broad and as easy as it may seem. Do you see the end of the road that you're on? Do you know where it leads? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 19 says, The wisdom of this world is folly with God. In a couple weeks, we're going to hear about the man who built his house on sand rather than on the solid rock of Jesus. Where is that house? It is destroyed. From the time of Adam and Eve, we have been on a broad highway 
away from God. Romans chapter 1, verse 29 tells us that humanity is full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slander. We invent evil. We are disobedient to our parents. We're foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. And we don't just occasionally sin. We give hearty approval to those who continually practice sin and to those who are running the fastest on that highway away from God. On that broad path, we are our own ruler. We're our own king. It's my rules, my desires, my plans. With seven billion people in the world today, that makes for a very wide path. We're born onto that highway, and honestly, it's wide and it feels pretty free, but it leads to death. One of the lies we hear today on that path is that everyone is free to travel their own path and that I need to give approval to your path wherever that happens to go and you will give approval to my path, maybe, wherever that goes. Is that what scripture says? Verse 14 says the gate is narrow. The way is hard. Those who find it are few. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. The Bible says that there is one way to God's kingdom, and that is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As we consider this, I want to give a warning to a a subset of people on the broad path to destruction, right? Highway to destruction. And I think we can think of it as maybe one lane on that interstate. While on the highway to separation from God, it is possible for us to make our path look very narrow. Broad highway, but we're staying in one little lane with lots of rules, lots of do's and don'ts, lots of religiosity, kind of going in a straight line, lots of religiosity, but without devotion to Jesus. Jesus saved some of his harshest rebukes for people like that. What does he say to those making up a man-made narrow path on the highway that's still going straight away from him? Chapter 7, a few verses later, he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Do you see the destination of the road you're on? Does it lead to the true king? Does it lead to the kingdom of heaven, the source of justice and love? The true narrow road is defined by God's truth, his rules and his desires and his plans. There's only one king and one truth. But the great news is that like we read moments ago, that king wants what's best for you. He wants good things for you. He wants to give you good gifts. He wants you to enter into his rest. He wants you to have abundant life. He has a plan for your future. You must be born again to travel that path, and it feels narrow and sometimes confining, but it leads to life. It leads to abundant life with a good king. So the mental image that I have for that narrow path is sometimes it's like out of a, a Lord of the Rings movie where there's a character climbing up some slippery rocks and working as hard as he can to get to some distant goal. 
But it's not our own effort or our own strength that brings us into God's kingdom. Last weekend, our family went for a hike. And I would describe it as somewhat strenuous. The hike was about eight miles long, had a couple thousand feet of vertical in it. Uh, And our youngest daughter, Malia, is seven years old. And she hiked the whole thing. And she did it holding my hand. I think we held hands for at least seven of the eight miles of the hike, right? I gently pulled her along on the uphill. I steadied her on the loose and rocky downhill. And when we were holding the hands together, she was indomitable. Our Father in Heaven is a lot like that. He calls us to a narrow, difficult, rocky path. But He is our strength for those uphills. And it's his hand that catches us on the downhills. It's him that we need to hold on to the whole way. Our Heavenly Father is both the destination for our path, and he's also our companion and our guide on that narrow path. So in this passage, we've seen three things. First, seek after God, and you will find him. Also, you will find him when you enter through the narrow gate of Jesus. And right in the middle, we see, be gracious to others while you follow him. I'm going to close with a story, and it's a, it's a genuinely sad story, but I think it illustrates that broad road that leads to destruction and why it's important to warn our friends, our family, our coworkers who are on that broad highway away from God. So a few years ago, uh, a new bridge was being constructed over a wide six-lane interstate in Colorado. It's uh, on I-70 in Denver, so you can quickly identify that it's the, it's the broad road to destruction, right? Because it's in Colorado. <laughs> but as they were building this new bridge above I-70, I-70 runs underneath the new bridge on top, the construction company set a new girder, and then work paused for a few days. And a girder is a, it's a technical engineering word for a, a big steel beam, and it's very strong when it's oriented correctly. And it is not strong if it is oriented wrong, if it's tipped. So they set this, and the beam started to tip while nobody was on the site for a few days. A couple days, there was... Thousands and thousands of people driving by every day on I-70 in Denver as this bridge above was failing. It was the morning of May 15th. There was an engineer who was driving by. He wasn't involved with the project. Happened to know something about bridges. Drove by on that six-lane interstate and said, that's not right. That's, that's a problem. He noticed that the girder was failing. He called 911. And when he called 911, he used a bunch of technical engineering terms to say, the bridge is falling down. And because he did that, he, he kind of said, the, you know, I don't know exactly what words he is, but he didn't say the bridge is falling down. The, the 911 operator misunderstood him. The 911 operator dispatched a Colorado Department of Transportation truck to go and fix a sign. The guys got out there, they looked at the sign, they tightened it up, and they drove away. 75 minutes after he called, that, that girder fell all the way across the interstate. 
it fell onto a Dodge Durango that was going 65 miles an hour, killed a husband, a wife, and their small child. That six-lane interstate was a wide road to destruction. That family did not know that they were going to the death, their death. A guy that did understand the danger was ineffective at warning others about what he knew to be true. For those of you who understand what the Bible says about where that wide road leads, are you warning your friends, your family, your coworkers, your neighbors? For those of you on an easy highway with yourself as king, traveling along as fast as you want, allow me to be a friend who warns you. The road is deadly and it leads to destruction. Look around. What road are you on? Where are you going? There is a narrow path to life. The gate onto that road is Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, and your surrender to the true king. If you want to know more about the narrow gate, talk to anybody sitting in here. The narrow gate is not a place, it's not a program, it's not a building, it's not a bunch of good deeds. The narrow gate is Christ alone. It is, he is our entry to the kingdom of God. Father God, I pray that you would show us the error of our ways. Show us where we are speeding along a highway away from you. Show us where we are trying to be our own kings. I pray that you would call us to repentance, to stop, to turn to you. And Lord, we praise you for being a God who loves, a God who opens that door before we can even knock, the God who says, enter in to my rest. And God, I thank you for being gracious with us, for being gracious with me. And I pray that I would be kind and gracious to others in return. And in the precious name of Jesus, we ask for your kingdom to come. Amen. Amen.